Now, The Interpreter Show, with discussion, debate, and the latest information on all kinds of religious issues and topics. I'm Steve Densley, and I am in the studio with co-host Mark Johnson. Steve, good to be here. Good to have you, Mark. And we are joined on the phone by Professor Daniel Peterson, the president of the Interpreter Foundation. Hi, good to be here. Well, let's move on now to our next segment, the Sermon on the Mount. And this is our New Testament in Context segment. And, you know, rather than going into detail on the uh, the story of the Sermon on the Mount and, and all of the... Um, the great teachings that are found in here. Um, let's talk about some of the, um, the, the the cultural context. You know, some of the references that are made. Um, you know, maybe trying to help modern readers step into the shoes of the listeners who were there at the time. Oh, looks like Pre- Professor uh, Peterson dropped off again. Okay, Professor Peterson, you back with us? I think so. Who knows for how long? <laughs> right. Well, we're just heading into our final segment. Uh, I was just mentioning that um, let's talk about some of these uh, cultural aspects of what's happening in the Sermon on the Mount to help people uh, gain a little bit more perspective of how the listeners, the original listeners of this sermon, may have approached it. Let, let's think first of all about uh, the fact that it's called, you know, Sermon on the Mount. Um, now we ought to mention, I suppose, that um, in in Luke, uh, it's a sermon on the plain, mm-hmm. um, but we think about it as uh, the Sermon on the Mount, um, and, and then in the Book of Mormon, of course, the sermon is given at the temple. Um, in my mind, um, that's that's not insignificant. It calls to mind the, uh, the the fact that mountains are so often seen as places where we commune with God, where we receive instruction from God. You know, Moses goes up to the mount and he receives the law. Uh, uh, Jesus Christ goes up to the mount and delivers sort of his, you know, new law or explication upon Uh the the greater law, I suppose. Um, You know, maybe maybe I'm reading too much into it, Um, you know, since, you know, later, you know, we we read the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, but um, what are your thoughts about that, Dan? Is there significance to the fact that uh, this is referred to as being a Sermon on the Mount in Matthew? Well, one thing that occurs to me as a possibility is this. I mean, uh, you notice a lot of the time that Jesus will say, you've heard it's been said by those of old times, such and such, but I say unto you. And he doesn't do what you might expect him to do if he were simply a rabbi. Excuse me. He, um, he doesn't cite authority. He simply says, I say to you, and then he contradicts the old sages. He's declaring his authority. And uh, in the same fashion, I think, it's striking to me that Moses goes up onto a mount to receive the law. Jesus goes up onto a mount to give it a new law. 
And I think for sensitive souls in the audience, they might have noticed that. That's a great point. Uh, you know, when you go to the... Um the traditional location in Israel for the Sermon on the Mount, um, it is uh, one of the most beautiful places in Israel. The way that they've created these gardens, um, and you have this, uh, it's a hill, it's overlooking the, the Sea of Galilee. Um, now, it's quite possible, if not likely, that that's not the you know actual location. I, I remember driving by in a bus, it might have been with you, Dan, where I think you might have pointed out, you know, there, there's a hill right there that some people say that might be the location. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just a real nondescript hill, um, but you can imagine, uh, you know, people sitting on this to, to hear somebody speaking or, you know, looking up to, to see someone, uh, you know, giving a sermon and, and maybe being able to, to hear him really well. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I love the, uh, the, the concept, Dan, that um, this, is, this is God who is in the flesh delivering his law. And, you know, yeah. the people are coming to the mount to receive it from the person who gave it to Moses. Right. Mark, right. Any, it's a really it's, striking image. It yeah. is. I think one of the significant things about that, too, and that kind of fits in with, I think, a lot of the Old or New Testament teachings, how um, you know Jesus made the, the gospel um, available to everyone. You know, um, it wasn't just something for the priests. Um, you know, in, in you know the gospel, go, the gospels go out of their way to mention that you know the messages of the Lord and salvation was now available to the Gentiles and available to women. Um, you know, this, this, it, this, it's a different um, different group partaking of um, the the law now than it was um, in in Moses's um, experience, where you know only the the, the was it the seventy men, it was it seventy right who went up to, to right. the mount and then only Moses went up to the the top to talk to the Lord. Um, this way, it, it's it's everyone who's who's there gets to gets to experience the the gospel. You know, he launches into this um, list of you know um, blessings. I suppose what we call the beatitudes. Um, you know. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Dan, why do we call these the Beatitudes? Well, it comes from the Latin word in the in the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, which was enormously influential. And the word there, instead of blessed are, it's Beatus est. Beatus meaning blessed. Uh, and so, for some reason, that's carried on over into the English. So we call them the Beatitudes. Um but it, it has to do with the Greek idea of uh, the original word is makarios, uh, makarioi, which again means blessed. Greeks even talked about the isles of the blessed, the uh, place where those lived who escaped pain and went to live in bliss uh, in the light to come. So it's a, it's a very old word, and that's the one that Christ is using. But we've come for some reason to adopt the Latin version. We still talk, the Catholics talk about it, the process of canonization for a new saint is that first he is beatified, and then bears the title blessed so-and-so, and if the process goes all the way, then he's saint so-and-so. But that word beatus is the Latin word for blessed. Mm, interesting. You know, in, in modern translations, you might see this translated as something like happy are they, 
Um, you know, yeah. happy are they that mourn, happier the poor in spirit, or fortunate are they. Um, yeah. And, and that's also there in, in the original language. Right. Well, and, you know, it's interesting looking at this list. Um, I, I was in my um, priesthood lesson today, and the teacher was talking about the doctrine of Christ, and he made this comment about how, you know, we can find the doctrine of Christ explicated in the Book of Mormon, and, um, you know, it, it's very clearly stated, this is my doctrine, and so um, I suppose it's true enough to say that, you know, where it's identified as doctrine, and, you know, Jesus Christ is saying, this is my doctrine, that maybe it's a little more literally stated. But I was always struck as we were studying the Old Testament this last year at how often we see the doctrine of Christ appearing in the Old Testament. And I think that it can be argued that the doctrine of Christ appears again here in the Beatitudes, where you have... um, you know, the poor in spirit, um, the blessed are they that mourn, they shall be comforted, that, that there's this sense that, uh, you know, we start out with faith and repentance, that, you know, that we, um, you know, we're poor in spirit, that we mourn for our sins. Uh, we, we have a sense of a need for redemption, a need for a Savior, um, and, and reaching out for Christ. And so then you move into a stage where you're willing to make covenants. Um, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth. Um, they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness will be filled, which may be evocative of, you know, eating bread and drinking water and being filled with the Holy Ghost. Um, that, uh, you know, the merciful shall obtain mercy, you know, that we strive to be like Christ, that we, you know, we covenant to uh, take upon ourselves his name and always remember him and keep his commandments. Um, and then we are promised that we will uh, receive the Holy Ghost. Um, in verse 8, it says, the pure in heart shall see God. Um, and, and then, you know, the final aspect of the doctrine of Christ is enduring to the end. Um, Those who endure persecution for righteousness' sake inherit the kingdom of heaven. Uh, so, uh, you know, if we're looking for meaning, you know, and how this may present a pattern for for right living, a a pattern for covenant-making, a pattern for um, exaltation. Um, It may be that the doctrine of Christ appears in the Beatitudes. Um, Any comments on that, Mark or or Dan? Makes sense to me. Um, One of the things that I think is just, I think, really interesting about the, the Beatitudes is that so much of it is... Um, forward-looking, where, you know, we, we meant, Dan mentioned um, this a little bit earlier, um, going back to um, th- our discussion about the, the near life and the, the far life um, from the Quran, um, how much of this has to do with um, the further life. Um, the, the meek, you know, in this life don't, you know, inherit the, the earth, you know, per se. That's, that's, that's something that's, you know, kind of uh, just doesn't, doesn't happen. Um, you know the, the world doesn't reward people for meekness, but uh, you know in the in the Savior's teachings and in the the kingdom, you know of God, um, it, it does. You know it's a it's a different um, different set of rules and that the Savior's uh, laying down, and and I appreciate that because I'm not a I'm not a bold person. Well, when we talk about inheriting the earth, you know, I wonder if that's not referring to the fact that this earth will 
become celestialized, and the people who are exalted will be living here on this mm-hmm. earth. They will inherit this earth uh, if they are, um, you know, if, if, if they uh, are faithful to their covenants. Um, it moves on, and then in verse 13, we hear that ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Um, you know, to say that you're the salt of the earth, um, to somebody you know, in modern times, I, I think that it, the meaning here would be lost on them. I, I don't know that it would have all that much weight or significance to tell somebody today you are the salt of the earth. I, I don't know that it would have as certainly not as much meaning. Uh, Professor Peterson, what, what what was the ancient significance of salt? Well, salt was enormously important. I mean, we still have sayings that um, that reflect that. We say a person was not worth his salt. People used to be paid in salt. That's why we talk about their salary. They were paid in salt because you need salt to live. Now, you don't need a lot, but it brings out the flavor in what you've got. Uh, it may also say, you're the salt of the earth, that, that the righteous, the, the truly righteous, the covenant people, will probably never be the majority. Um, just as you, you hope that salt will not be the majority of your diet. Um, but without the salt, it, it loses its flavor, loses its savor, uh, and salt is just really important. That's why, if you go to Europe today, still in some of the areas around Salzburg in Austria, for example, uh, salt mines were really important. You can still take tours of them. And we think, well, why so important? Well, it's because we're so used to having a reliable supply of salt that we really don't miss it. But in the old days, if you didn't have it, you had to have health consequences from the lack of salt. You needed it. So it's a really important thing, much more central to our lives than we realize. Uh, and in those days, harder to get. Yeah, we, uh, Dan, you and I went this last summer to the oldest salt mine in the world, uh, Hallstatt, yeah. uh, just outside Salzburg, you know, salt, salt city, yeah. salt village. <laughs> and yeah, salt, yeah salt, salt castle, really, and a salt fortress. Okay, yeah, and um, you know, seven thousand year old salt mine, um, which which uh, helps illustrate the fact that the salt uh, you, it, it still it still is a salt mine. Uh, Hallstatt, the the mine there is um, still they're still taking salt out of it. Um, the salt lasts a long time well, I, I suppose forever um you know it's it's going to keep its savor um it won't lose its savor um except under certain circumstances um mark dan do you know when it is that salt loses its savor off the top of my head i don't recall well, so the reason salt would lose its savor, it's a very, it's a, it's, you know, sodium chloride is a very stable compound. 
Um, But if you break it up, if you mix it in with something else, then it will lose its... You know, lose its flavor, lose its effectiveness. You you have to break it up. Uh, you know, mix it in with something else, um, dilute it. Um, so maybe maybe you're mixing in with dirt. You know, but I mean, it becomes contaminated. Yeah. It, that that's how it will lose its savor. Um, and so, I guess the metaphor here is that we need to remain pure and we need to remain uncontaminated from the world. Um, otherwise, we lose our savor. I mean, uh, but, you know, if, if you keep the salt uncontaminated, it can last thousands of years and still serve the same purpose as if, um, I don't know if we're distilling it out of salt water or something. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so it was used as a preservative and, and seasoning. I think maybe most significantly it was used in making covenants. It was used in animal sacrifice. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we read about it being used in Leviticus, Ezekiel. Um, and, you know, I, I wonder if there's not a, a, a message here uh, that when it says that ye are the salt of the earth, when we think about how important salt was to covenant making and the ritual performances, uh, Members of the church today are the ones who hold the authority to perform the rituals that will uh, help extend salvation mm-hmm. to the world. Um, that we are, we're the salt of the earth. We're the, 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 the ones who hold the authority to make the covenants. Um, we're the ones that can perform these rituals. And that if the salt hath lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? That, that if, if the keys of the priesthood don't exist on the earth anymore, then how is the earth going to receive the covenants that are necessary for salvation? How are these rituals going to be performed? Um, interesting, you know, Jesus spoke in parables. You know, there are some people that aren't just, are not going to understand what he's talking about. I wonder if this isn't, you know, uh, one of those instances where uh, m- maybe there's some veiled language here that's referring specifically to, you know, covenants and rituals that are necessary for salvation, and without them that the earth is is lost. The whole earth would be wasted at his coming? Yeah, I don't know. Some kind of channeling uh, Malachi there. And that's interesting, too, because that would uh, make us as, you know, ones who uh, perform and, you know, preserve these uh these ordinances make us, uh, you know, like salt, like make us preservers for the earth. Yeah, yeah, could be. Well, um, so let's talk about let's talk about divorce for a minute. Um, there's an interesting uh, statement here about divorce. Um, you know that you know Jesus talks about how you know it's been said, you know that um, you know that you can. Uh, if you're going to divorce your wife, you know, give her a bill of divorcement. Um, you know, but I say unto you, um, you know, don't even look upon a woman to lust after her. Um, why is it that, uh, well, what's the significance here of, of offering a bill of divorcement? Um, you know what's what? It, what is it that's what is it that's going on in the law? Do you, Professor Peterson, do you know? Well, I think you know more about it as a lawyer than I do. <laughs> well, I know a little something about it. I, I took uh, ancient Near Eastern law class from uh, from Jack Welch in law school, 
and and it is interesting. Uh, Zevi Falk, who wrote the book Hebrew Law and Biblical Times, talks about this, and he says that uh, divorce was basically an arbitrary, unilateral, private act on the part of the husband that consisted of the wife's expulsion from the husband's house. The usual term for a divorced woman was gerusha, meaning expelled. And, uh, you know, you could basically divorce a wife for anything. Um, you know, if you just, uh, there's a, there was sometimes a formula, you know, you could just say, she's not my wife and I am not her husband. And, um, you know, then that, uh, that would be that. Um, now, uh, there was a, uh, you know, a little bit later, a rule in, in, in place where the husband was required to deliver a bill of divorce to his wife at her expulsion. And what this did is this helped protect the wife. It was necessary uh, so that, you know, if later he tried to claim rights over her, that she could produce this bill of divorcement and show that she actually had been divorced. And so, you know, this was seen as something that could help protect her. And, um, you know, so that, that makes some sense. Um, but, uh, you know, then Christ says, even that's not good enough. We're, we're not, um, uh, you know, the, the fact that you've been so kind as to give her actually a writing that says, you know, that you're divorced and so she could use that to protect herself. Christ says, whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whoever, whosoever shall marry her that is divorced committeth adultery. In other words, he's creating a, um, a higher responsibility that, uh, you know, a, a higher level of commitment um, that, you know, they, it, it, divorce should not be taken so lightly as to say, you know, you're no longer my wife and, um, you know, give her a, a written piece of paper and send her on her way. Um, so um, I, I thought that was helpful to understand what he's talking about when he's uh, mentioning this bill of divorcement. Um, you know, one, one other thing I want to make sure that we, we talk about, because I think that we get caught up in it a lot, um, and I think that maybe it is... Um, uh, Maybe it's not, maybe we're not interpreting this correctly, where um, toward the end here in chapter 5, um, verse 48, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Um, we think about that in terms of being flawless. So, you know, therefore don't make any mistakes, even as your Heavenly Father doesn't make any mistakes. Um, now, I don't, I don't think that's exactly what Jesus Christ meant, but that is, you know, as we sit in gospel doctrine from week to week, um, it seems that that is how people talk about what God expects of us. He expects us to never make any mistakes, expects us to be flawless, um, and that can be deeply discouraging to people. Uh, Dan, what is meant here in the Greek word that's used for perfect, what, what does that mean? Does it mean flawless or without fault? No, it, it, the teleos, which is the word that appears there in the Greek, actually means to be complete, to to almost be mature. Uh, I'm thinking of the... Uh, I'm thinking of its use in, uh, in the philosophy of Aristotle, for example. He talks about uh, the telos, of something, the telos of an, of an acorn, its end, its purpose, its completion is to be an oak, 
Um, so we are to be, we are to grow up to be like our Father in heaven. I think. I actually see in Matthew five forty eight a kind of a version to a doctrine of human deification. We are to grow up to mature to be like our Father in heaven. It's not talking about moral perfection. It's talking about being about completion. We even have some old um, senses of that term in still in English. We talk about a a perfect tense in a language. That means a verb that refers to an action that's complete. It's done. It's finished. It's not future. It's not ongoing. It's it's done. We are to aspire to be mature and complete, like our Father in heaven. But that's an aspiration. It doesn't mean you have to be flawless in this life uh, or be condemned. That's certainly not what Christianity is teaching. Well, and um, to be finished or whole or complete uh, isn't, you know, it's not something that necessarily we attain in this life, um, but we can become, the scriptures tell us that we can become perfect in Christ. And. Right. You know, if we're going to become whole or complete, um, it's almost like, you know, if you, you imagine, uh, you know, my, my wife's an art conservator, and sometimes, you know, she'll have an oil painting come in that is missing bits and pieces. It's not finished. It's not whole or complete. And uh, she maybe needs to um, fill those bits in, right? So in some sense, Christ is... Filling up, you know, those those parts of us that are lacking and and that are um, in, incomplete or imperfect, and that through entering into covenants with Him, that we can become whole and we can become finished or, or perfect or complete. Um, so not that we haven't made mistakes, not that we're um, flawless, mm-hmm. but through Christ we can become whole or complete. Um, I, I really like what Jack Welch says about this, too, in his, um, in his book, Sermon at the Temple, uh, that the word teleos was used by the Greeks also in a ritual context, and yeah. that uh, it would refer to somebody who has been um, entirely uh, introduced into the, the rituals, that you know, you, you've been fully endowed or... Uh, maybe another way to to translate this would be live up to your covenants completely um, so that you are uh, faithful you, you've you've remained true and faithful to the covenants you've made so be therefore perfect be therefore you know make all of the covenants enter into all of the saving ordinances and be you know remain faithful to those you know be ye therefore finished in making all of your covenants and remaining faithful to them. Um, That may be another way of interpreting this. And the fact that Jesus gives this sermon at the temple in the Book of Mormon um, may be a clue that this is intended as a sermon on making covenants and ritual performances and those things that, that, you know, saving ordinances that help us to become Christ-like. Well, we've got yeah, about like we've got about thirty seconds left, Dan. Any <laughs> any uh, final thoughts on the Sermon on the Mount? I'll say this: I've heard people say sometimes we don't need the Book of Mormon. We have all that we can possibly live up to already in the Bible. And I say, well, then you don't need much of the Bible. Be therefore perfect ought to be enough to keep you busy. How about taking any one of the Beatitudes, 
Sermon on the Mount as a whole, that's plenty to keep you busy. Um, you know, if, if you want to just go by something that's challenging enough to occupy me for the rest of my life, uh, you can say, well, I don't need the Book of Mormon. You don't need the whole Bible for that. Just a few verses in the Bible would be enough to keep any any reasonable person busy for the rest of his days. Well, thank you, Dan, for joining us. This is the Interpreter Foundation Radio Show on K Talk Radio.